arts are everywhere and in everything. And there's a fascinating, unique person and story behind each one. And that's what the Arthropologist is all about. Exploring the arts, one unique person and one unique story at a time. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the Arthropologist. Today, my son and business partner, Emil Wilson, is guest hosting The Arthropologist. Emil is a producer, director, and choreographer. He is the senior partner for the creative services and advertising agency, Haypax Creative. He is also an adjunct professor of theater at Jackson State University. During the pandemic, all his classes had to transition to online, which opened up many opportunities for guest lecturers. This interview with Doc Davis was recorded as part of the switch to online learning for his introduction to theater class. Doc Davis has his MFA in audio design and engineering from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign and is on the faculty at Otterbein University. Okay, guys, so we're taking this week to talk about technical theater, and I have on the line my friend, former college roommate, collaborator in all sorts of things, Doc Davis, who is an audio engineer and an audio designer. Has his MFA in uh, audio design and engineering from uh, University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign and is a professor and staff member at Otterbein. Is it Otterbein College or Otterbein University? It's Otterbein University. Otterbein University in Ohio. Um, And I wanted to take a little bit of time and let him talk about what it means to be a designer, especially a designer in something like audio, which, you know, so much of the design world that we've seen so far in class is is something you can draw. It's Mm -hmm. costumes, it's set, things like that. Audio, I think, is much more, it's much more ethereal and in a lot of ways, I feel like audio requires a better vocabulary for design because it's not like I can say, make this greener. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, it's it's absolutely true. Uh, with sound design, especially, it, uh, it, it is a, it requires a bit more of a technical kind of, uh, base to start on uh so that you can experiment and work with things you can't just uh pull out a pencil and sketch something out you have to uh come up with something and actually put it together in some sort of software program uh in order to get your ideas across but what you were saying about uh having a different language is absolutely uh absolutely true it's and you know you do actually get directors who say i don't know the sound is a little uh, blue, I think, and being able to work with the director to translate what they what they mean in a from like a technical or musical term versus what they are used to saying uh, is a big part of the job. So uh, let's start with just a little bit of how you got to this point. I mean, where did you where did you start getting involved in audio engineering? Did you always intend, I think, in fact, you were my tech director. 
I was in college. So, uh, yeah. So I actually started out doing lighting and sound in high school. Sorry, there's cat hair everywhere. Uh, doing lighting and sound in high school uh, because I took the drama class, the theater class, and uh, I had a lot of computer aptitude. So my theater director, uh, drama class teacher, uh, asked if I would be willing to learn the lighting and sound uh, boards to do that. And so I really started out kind of doing lighting and sound. Uh, but once I hit college and started working professionally during the summers, uh, doing sound design, doing uh, even just sound engineering, uh, I worked at Dollywood. I worked at a uh, summer stock theater up in Kentucky called Jenny Wiley Theater uh, and kind of figuring out that that's where I wanted to go. Uh, in college, I did want to make sure that I experienced everything, all of the uh, different aspects, because it, it, it is important, uh, especially as a uh, designer, to be able to speak to all the other designers. I need to be able to say to the technical director, I need to put a speaker here and understand when he says no because this is a cross brace that's needed for the structure to stand up. Uh, I actually did have that exact scenario with uh, an orchestra. They had the orchestra on stage under a, uh, a metal structure and there was a cross brace that was like three quarters of the way through it. And the musical director and I are like, uh, this is kind of slicing through the orchestra. Can we have this cross bracing somewhere else. And, uh, you know, we worked with the technical director to come up with other bracing solutions. It, it's, it's always helpful when working with others if you can help provide a solution and not just provide a problem. Like, that's a great life lesson in general. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about, like, figuring out the the way you approach a script from an audio perspective. Uh, are you just basically building a soundtrack to something or what, what, is, what is your perspective when you look into a script and go, okay, here's what I'm thinking as an audio designer? Well, my script analysis uh, has a couple of different steps. Uh, the first thing I always do, no matter what the script is, whether I've done the show before, whether I've done that exact script before, uh, is I sit down with a cup of coffee or a Coke Zero, and I read the script cover to cover with no pencils, no pens, nothing, no computer. Uh, just sit down and read the script and really kind of let it uh, exist as the writer intended it. From there, I can go through and start saying, uh, there are two kind of basic sounds that you add. First is what I call one shots, which is the things that are notated in the script. The doorbell, uh, a dog barks outside, uh, a car pulls up outside, things like that. Uh, and then there's kind of the more uh, creative side of it where you decide, well, does this theme need underscoring? Do I want underscoring under this monologue? Uh, do I want a soundscape? Uh, what do I want to do for pre-show music or sound? What do I want to do for curtain call music or sound? Uh, so generally speaking, I work on getting my one shots in a good place first. Uh, and by then I'll have read the script probably three or four times and really digested it well enough to 
be able to talk to the director and say, I was thinking about adding an underscore for uh, this monologue here. Uh, and I was thinking of something like this. Uh, so having a familiarity with it so that you can have a discussion with the director about what they're going for. And uh, a big part of it is my approach is kind of the uh, approach of over-design. Uh, I always make way too many sound cues and intend to cut a lot of them during tech uh, because I have found that in sound, with lighting it's a little hard to do that because you, it's hard to cut lighting cues because then the stage goes dark. Uh, but with sound, you know, if you have an underscoring and you're like, well, it's just really not working with what the performer's bringing, uh, or it's just really not uh, adding to the show, it's, it's calling too much attention to itself at this time, uh, then you can much more easily cut a sound cue than you can something like a lighting cue or a prop. So I always kind of over design uh, a little bit just so that I have the room to uh, work in that space. Awesome. Um, you guys, uh, in a design approach, how much of what you're doing is your own vision and how much is the division of the director or collaborative vision? Yeah. Um, so sound especially uh, tends to be, and it, it absolutely depends on the director. Uh, here at Otterbein, we have four or five, is it five? I think we have five different directors who direct shows. Uh, and each director that you work with is different. Uh, you have, I have one director who is very much like, I don't know, show me what you got. Uh, I've got another director that is, very much like he has in his head the show from day one, everything there. And you can work with him on adding some things, but for the most part, he's like, no, I wasn't really thinking of anything there. Or I was thinking that the car pulling up would sound larger or, or something like that, very specific. So it, and it's, it runs a spectrum uh, really as to how much, and it's all collaboration because the director isn't the one uh, making the sound cues or the underscoring or anything, the microphone choices or anything like that. It's uh, a collaboration in that sense of helping create the director's vision, uh, whereas a director that has less of a defined vision going into the script, uh, going into the show, uh, might be a little bit more collaborative in the way of discovering it as you go, discovering the show. Which reminds me, you and I should probably talk a little bit about Midsummer after this. Yes. yes sure. um, so to the students watching this, um, I have said from the get-go that we will embed your assignments in these videos so that you get some, I get some proof that you've actually watched the videos. Uh, one of the things that I'd love in the discussion response to this video is uh, I want you to put the two basic types of audio, what do you call them? Audio design, audio. Uh, the two types of sound effects? Two types uh, of uh, sound effects. Sound cues, sound cues. Yeah. yeah. Two types of sound effects, two types of sound cues that uh, 
Professor Davis mentioned earlier. And then I'd love for you in your discussion to say which type of director you would be and why. Would you be more the type that came in with a whole creative vision or would you be more the type that assembled a team and got some of their vision before completing your own? And I want to know why you would pick that or why you think that's the way you would work. There's no right or wrong answer. I want it to be more self-analysis self and analytical as to your style of approaching, you know, not just theater, but everything that you work on and do in life. Um, so, see how I do that, Doc? Yeah, <laughs> works well. Um, so, you know, one of the things I'd love to hear, maybe some good stories from uh, ways in which you have seen sound design make a difference in uh, a show you worked on. Yeah, so, um... Actually, we just recently did a production of Diary of Anne Frank. Um, it was really funny because I had done that exact script back when, back in high school, I'd done it for a little community theater in uh, Pearl, Mississippi. Uh, I, don't, I don't know, is Actors Playhouse still around? Sort of, they still do some stuff. Okay, Le yeah. LeVon's, LeVon's never gonna stop. Yeah, that's true. Uh, but I had done that exact script before, so I had some familiarity with it, but I had not done it since I really ha had gotten to the point of understanding how sound can affect a scene. And so there is a, obviously at the end, where the Nazis come in and they tell the family to pack up your belongings in 30 seconds and then march them out the door. Uh, and in watching the rehearsal video, it felt to me like the director kept trying to rush them. He was, he was rushing them. And that's, that's obviously what, what would be realistic, but it felt to me that the whole scene then felt rushed. So I talked to the director and what we ended up doing is I had from the moment there was a, obviously a sound of a car or a truck pulling up outside that was not, you, you didn't really notice it, but it was there. And then there was the sound effects of people coming up the stairs. But the first thing you really noticed was when they started pounding on the door to break into it. Uh, but from the time that the car pulled up, I started this low frequency rumble uh, and I started it at a very, very low volume. And as the scene went on, it got louder and louder and louder and louder until by the time they were ushered out of the door, it was almost deafening. And then they slammed the door behind them and it just stops. And then you hear the car door close downstairs as they're loaded in and then drive off. And it really kind of uh, added tension. It added a lot of tension to the scene. Uh, and it wasn't just... It, it it made this it honestly made the scene kind of scary uh just to see you know it it brought realism in an unrealistic way uh you know it was obviously not what would be called a diegetic sound diegetic sound is something that is happening in the world of the character so that's your you know a dog barks uh non-diegetic sound is things like underscoring things that the characters don't actually hear but that exist to help the scene 
Um, so it obviously wasn't a diegetic sound. It, there wasn't a real rumble happening, happening, but it was more a representation of the tension and the terror that they would have felt as this was happening. So that's one example. You know, you've mentioned Mike Choice and a couple of things like that. How much of what you're doing is really technical in, in terms of choosing mics or blending sounds in, a com in computer software and how much of it is uh, emotional design storytelling? Sure. Uh, well, it is almost 100% technical. Uh, the, uh, because you are using uh, those tools as you are uh, making those emotional discoveries. So it's kind of like, you know, it, it's, a, it's a solid question, but it's kind of like asking how much of designing uh, a set involves thinking of what's going to be on the set. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's sure. It, it, it's, it's all interconnected. And a lot of it is technologically based. Uh, but I would say in sound design, especially there's not as much just kind of sitting and visualizing like, you know, like just kind of sitting and staring and thinking about what I might do. Uh, there's not as much of that. Uh, because I make discoveries more uh, as I'm working. So like the, the rumble that I just talked about, for instance, I made that as a discovery uh, when I had a speaker and a microphone and it caused this low feedback rumble. And I was like, huh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, and I went from there to what was in the finished uh, piece. So it's, it's all technical and it's all also artistic. Uh, in sound design especially, you kind of just have to trust your instincts a lot more uh, as to what will sound good, what will sound right, uh, which uh, is not always, uh, it, it's always interesting to me how often you have to do the wrong sound in order for it to sound right. Uh, like one big thing is gunshots. Gunshots don't sound like what they sound like on TV and movies. But if you play an, a realistic gunshot for a, a scene, it takes people out of it because they're like, wait, what was that? What was that pop? Did somebody pop a balloon? You know, uh, you have to use that really loud, like cannon gunshot uh, if in order for the audience to kind of buy into it without thinking. Hmm. So, and so that leads to a question, how much of your work is, creating new Foley, which for those uh, listening who don't know what Foley is, I'd love for you to give a, a good definition of that. Um, how much of it is you creating your own effects, your own Foley, and how much of it is mixing existing stock materials? Yeah, um, I actually do, uh, I'd say it's about 25% making my own sounds, 75% uh, using existing sounds, uh, but every sound requires modification. So it's very, very, very rare that I just like download a sound and plop it into the show file and it's good to go. Um, but Foley is the art of creating sound effects uh, to... Uh, that work uh, usually not using uh, 
the actual thing. So for example, uh, in uh, the term comes from film because in film they wouldn't, the microphones picking up the people acting wouldn't necessarily hear things like the footsteps. So Foley artists have these different surfaces and these different types of shoes and they record the footsteps by literally kind of tapping them down on the floor and recording that sound while watching the movie uh, and different things like that. One example is uh, if you take a piece of, uh, have you shown lighting gel what that is? No, actually we haven't. Okay. So lighting gel we did, is... We, we might have actually, because I did get everyone up on the uh, on the grid. There we go. So. Uh, but lighting gel is kind of like a sick, uh, sick, thick cellophane uh, material. And what happens if you take it and you kind of crumble it in your hands? It makes this like sound that sounds like fire, and that's how you create the sound effect of a campfire is by taking gel and just kind of making crinkling it like that. Um, that's one example. Uh, I was looking around my desk. I don't have anything in particular that would be that interesting, but uh... that's cool. Um, so obviously there are sort of those one-off sound effects, but it seems like there's a lot of music involved. Are you a musician? Do you understand music? Tell me about your relationship with music as an audio designer. Sure. Uh, well, my relationship is very close with music. Uh, obviously, I've like like everybody. I love music, uh, all kinds of music, uh, different things. I don't know if I would consider myself a quote unquote musician uh, so much as a creator of music. And that that sounds like I'm saying the same thing, but I, I feel like a musician has a bit more connotation of this is what you're doing, whereas the music I create uh, has such a specific uh, use case that I'm creating it for. Uh, I'm not, a musician I think creates music from their own emotions and I'm creating music from emotions in the show. Uh, so I think that's one way of putting it. I, I don't know if I would call myself a musician, but I do have training in music theory. I have training in composition, uh, and I do some composition and some creation of music for shows. Uh, mostly uh, at this point for copyright reasons, uh, because it's against copyright law to just take a song from the radio or from Spotify or something and play it under a scene. Uh, because that you have you would have to pay the artist of that song for the rights to do that, and those rights are expensive enough that in most productions it's not feasible to do it. So legally, it makes a lot more sense for me to compose underscoring and things like that. Uh, and it also makes a lot more sense because usually when I create underscoring, it's not something you would just like listen to and jam out, you know, on while you're walking down the street. It's usually something that's very, very simple, maybe like a couple of instruments, maybe just changing notes here and there. Uh, it, it's not as uh, complex as most of the music you would hear on something like Spotify or whatever. Awesome. Um, you actually did an, a master's degree in audio design engineering. Can you talk to me a little bit about what 
that degree was like, what a master's program in theater is like, and especially especially something like yours that's so technical and hands-on. Yeah, uh, so I got my degree at the University of Illinois, as he said uh, earlier, at Urbana-Champaign. Uh, and it was, honestly, grad school was really fantastic. So uh, obviously in college, if your college has gen eds and things like that, grad school typically doesn't have anything like that. You have some requirements, but like I didn't have to go take a math course and I didn't have to take a, uh, you know, a, a history of the American Revolution course or whatever. Uh, I could really just take courses. Uh, and then it, grad school also has a lot of freedom to take the courses you uh, that relate to your interest. So I took courses, I took uh, two semesters of music theory, I took uh, a course on electroacoustic composition, that is composition using uh, found sound, uh, took a couple semesters of that, and then I took, uh, you know, some things like uh, computer graphics and uh, other things in addition to all of my sound and sound design and rigging and all of those types of classes that are just kind of mandatory. Uh, the thing about grad school is grad school is more about your, it's more about you finding your own understanding rather than in college. I feel like it's you getting understanding from your professors, uh, gaining an understanding from your teachers. Uh, grad school is a lot more self-driven. Obviously there are classes and things like that, but the big parts of grad school are things like your master's thesis or your practicum projects, which is when you are actually sound designing shows in my case, uh, or set designing shows or lighting designing shows. And you have advisors to help you out, but a lot of the time it's, well, what are you going to do with this with this particular problem you have? Uh, so it's a time of experimentation uh, in in your art form that really uh, is a benefit. And also, uh, you know, being in a graduate school with a lot of other graduates in different areas, and you know, those being kind of your peers and your friends, uh, is fantastic both for the networking opportunities you know I know people working all over the world now in very high level positions but uh, also just in helping understand that collaborative spirit that theater has and that's one of the things that I've definitely tried to instill through the classes is theater is a collaborative art and everyone's bringing something different to the table um, what what do you feel like you bring to the table specifically as opposed to other sound designers? What makes you unique? What's your style? Hmm. That's an interesting question. Uh, <laughs> never actually thought about that. Uh, I think what uh, my style is, is um, I... I intend to add interest to a piece. Uh, my sound designs typically uh, are in service to the to the work, uh, the play or the musical or whatever. Uh, but uh, 
a lot of sound designers are more by the book, more like, well, we should put some underscoring here because this is Hamlet's soliloquy and that's where we have underscoring. Uh, whereas I think I like to experiment a little bit more and I think that leads to uh, some really great developments sometimes. Uh, so. Awesome. Yeah. No, that's a great answer. Um, what can you talk a little bit? Cause we, I like to talk about the job opportunities in theater that it's not just a bunch of, low paid actors and fat cat producers. Right. Um, it, talk to me a little bit about some of the jobs that are associated with audio design and engineering and some of the experiences. You've actually done a little bit of touring. You've done, um, you've done a wide range of things. And of course we've got friends like Justin and mm -hmm. others who have done other wild, crazy things. So, <laughs> Yeah, just talk a little bit about the, the jobs and career paths. Yeah, well, audio is really fantastic because uh, it has so many transferable skills. Uh, everything needs sound reinforcement, uh, you know, whether that's uh, a movie, whether that's a Broadway musical, whether that's an opera at the Metropolitan Opera, whether that's uh, the CEO of Apple walking on stage and introducing the new I whatever, uh, everybody needs sound. And so I, there are uh, a couple of different positions. In theater specifically, uh, some of the positions are the sound designer, obviously. Then there is your systems engineer. Your systems engineer is an associate of the sound designer, and their job is to make sure, especially in large musical situations, that all the equipment connects together and works together properly and things like that. Uh, then you've got your A1, who's your mixer, the person who's actually behind the board throwing the faders and mixing the show you've got your a2 or your uh assistant audio and that's the person usually backstage putting microphones on people uh setting up microphones doing things like that and typically you'll also have a playback engineer who's handling all the sound cues and playback and things like that uh, and so that's just in a typical broadway show that's like five five or six positions uh but you know once you leave the theater world there's also all of these positions in concerts and touring uh you can do that for a venue uh most venues uh there's a guy I'm friends with in downtown Columbus who works at the Southern Theater. His name's Paul Kavicki, and he is the house sound engineer. And so his job is the Southern gets a lot of the Broadway tours and stuff that come through. And so his job is to work with them to make sure that they can adequately load in their equipment, that they can make the room sound good, things like that. Uh, and then there's all of the recorded media, you know, there's podcasts. You could, be an engineer for podcasts you could be a recording engineer you could be a studio engineer you could be uh you could do film work you could be a boom operator you could be a location recordist you could uh be a, a re-recording mixer somebody who mixes the audio down you could be a foley artist as we said before uh so there's just like and all of these just have the same kinds of skills obviously there's different uh there's differences in the jobs themselves and uh so each one requires a bit of learning and a bit of mastery to get right but there are just tons of jobs in sound well and i remember back when 
you and I were roommates, you were working for a church, paid on uh, their team doing audio for them for services, for funerals and weddings. And yeah, absolutely. I think you were making an additional like, 25% of your salaried income as a production manager for Bellhaven. Yeah. So, yeah. So that, that's another opportunity there is uh, churches and houses of worship, things like that. Those are, uh, those are big ones. I will also say uh, one thing I always tell my mixers that I'm training, my people who really just want to go out and mix shows, is one of the big things is uh, that they can do, one of the best things they can do is work at a big church for a while as their sound engineer uh, because it's so, it's so live and there's so much that happens that you really have to be on top of it uh you really have to okay wait he just traded microphones with that guy and now this guy's walking on onto the pulpit and which microphone is he holding and having to figure you know and now the now the pastor is in the back of the house and it's like uh the back of the sanctuary i guess uh but uh there, there's a lot that I learned from doing that. And I always recommend that my mixers, my people who really want to mix live shows, uh, do that for, for at least a time. Uh, and I mean, like you said, the money's not bad uh, if you can get a good, good steady position. Yeah, I know. I did work really even uh, after you moved to Otterbein back when you were at UIUC, I did work mixing shows for churches, mixing shows for the Iron Horse Grill. Mm. Um, I still occasionally pinch hit for the Iron Horse Grill. And yeah, every, every venue is different. Everything, it, everything requires that you be adaptable. Yeah. And can you talk a little bit about the process of becoming adaptable in your design work? Yeah, um, it really comes down to, it, it is, it's a, uh, it's an emotional thing. You know, I, I used to have a lot of issue when I would work really hard on a cue and the director's like, mm, no, I don't think that's going to work. And we would cut it. Uh, it's really, you just got to kind of have a chill attitude about the whole thing about, you know, work hard, obviously, and do your best but understand that this is not the end all be all. And uh, sometimes you are gonna have to make things work in situations that are suboptimal uh, to say the least. Uh, and sometimes you're gonna have shows that go bad and sometimes you're gonna have shows you're not really proud of. Uh, and that's just kind of part of the game of any designer I think uh, is that part of being an artist like a designer is failure. Uh, so you have to accept that and learn what you can from your failures rather than letting those failures kind of uh, take over and, oh no, I'm terrible. I'm never doing this again, you know? You know, I think one of the things that the business world is finally seeing alongside the art world and you know the entrepreneurship side has always uh promoted this but the idea of fail forward mm -hmm. has really it, it feels like it's taken hold in both the business world and the art world you know i remember thomas edison was it edison who said i haven't 
failed a thousand times have only come up with a thousand ways not to make a light bulb. Yeah, I think that was Edison, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course, Edison stole everything from Tesla. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm sure Tesla said it in reality. Yeah. Um, but okay, this has been great. This has been about 30 minutes. Um, is there anything else you think people should know about the work of an audio designer or uh, some of the technical aspects? Anything you'd like to share for these students? Uh, no, not really. Uh, I would just say that uh, the big thing about being a sound designer is that everything that the audience hears is your responsibility. So uh, sometimes as a sound designer, it's your job to go to the lighting designer. And my lighting designer is a big lighting designer. He just finished work at the LA Opera. He's going to the Met again uh, in a couple, uh, at the end of the year, I think. Uh, and uh, he's He's lit a Tony-nominated show. He's won a Drama Desk Award. Big lighting designer. But uh, sometimes I have to go to him and say, TJ, these lights are too loud and they're too close to the microphones. We're going to have to do something. And, you know, that's, that's really where collaboration kicks in. Uh, so I, I think... And I would also say sound design, and maybe this is just me and why I do it, but sound design, I think, is one of the more fun uh, aspects of theater uh, because you get to really experiment, you get to be really musical, and uh, there's always, you know, new toys, new technology coming out to learn. Uh, I'm using this little uh, extended spring break and getting some new certifications in networked audio and things like that. So. Uh, always, always new innovations in this. If I had a student interested in audio design or even in uh, like a base level certification, taking something like that, because we don't offer an audio design course, mm -hmm. where would you recommend them look on uh, Khan Academy, YouTube? Like where, where would someone go for some additional education? Uh, I have I have a specific website that I've been using. I think it's still up. Uh, it's Kai's Sound Handbook, K-A-I, uh, apostrophe S, Sound Handbook. If you Google that, you'll find it. Uh, Kai Herida is a Broadway sound designer. He was the associate designer on Wicked. Uh, and uh, about that time, he started this website uh, that basically goes through uh, talking about how all this stuff works. And that really kind of was my jump start into that. Uh, it's it's a bit it's a bit technical. It's a bit focused on the technical, uh, not as much focused on the artistic, the design side. But it is absolutely a great stepping off point for somebody interested in sound in theater. Um, and you know, if you have somebody that's like very specifically interested, send them my way. I'm teaching my classes on YouTube. So uh, nice. some of my lectures will be available. Awesome. Yeah. I actually would like to probably watch those because I, I feel like as a, oh gosh, I couldn't call you because of the parameters of the grad school assignment, but I was working on a show last summer that had some pretty necessary audio mm -hmm. in it and my gosh i 
I've never felt so inadequate trying to design. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this sounds like a muddy pile of crap. <laughs> well, again, that's, that's learning from failure. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, I, I was trying very hard to create some underscoring with some layered cascading uh, vocals. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, wow. I'm doing this completely wrong. <laughs> yeah. Well, that is one but, of the harder one of the harder things to do. As as the sound gets more complex, uh, the easier it is to turn it into mud. So yeah. there are some tricks to that that I'll discuss with you off camera if you're interested. But um, just not to get too particularly technical. Sure. If you enjoyed this episode of the Arthropologist, there are more episodes on YouTube. To see my work. You can visit my website, BillWilsonStudio.com, where I have my books, prints, and originals for sale. I am a portrait painter and illustrator, and there you can contact me about commissioned work. I'm Bill Wilson, and I'm the anthropologist. <laughs>